In the Buddha's teachings, there's a great vastness of vision. He talked about different planes of existence, the lower realms and the human realm and all the different heaven realms. When I first went to India and met with my teacher, Munindraji, he used to love talking about the different heaven realms and describing all the delights of them. Of course, most of the Westerners listen to it with some degree of skepticism, uh, although I really enjoyed hearing about the potential delights. <laughs> but he would always end, you don't, have to, you don't have to believe this, this is not really you know, essential to the teachings. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. <laughs> so there are the planes of existence, and there are countless world systems, you know, and endless rebirths, countless rebirths. So it's a very big picture that the Buddha was painting. For most of us, though, these aspects of the vision for the most part, lie outside of the realm of our direct experience. You may hear about it and either believe it or not believe it, but not too many of us visit those realms regularly. There's another way of understanding the spiritual journey and the vastness of it that doesn't have to do with cosmology, but it has to do with understanding the nature of our own minds. It's really a journey into our minds, understanding how it is that we create suffering for ourselves and for other people, and how it is, or what is the possibility of becoming free. There are many different Buddhist traditions from so many of the Asian countries with different methods and different metaphysics, but all of the traditions of Buddhism converge in one understanding of what liberates the mind. And the Buddha expressed it many, many times in the discourses. He said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, which is the word he used to describe himself, to call himself. The supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, namely, liberation through non-clinging. Elsewhere he said, this is the deathless, that is which beyond birth and death, this is the deathless, namely, liberation through non-clinging. Centuries later in India, as Buddhism was practiced by so many generations of people, centuries later there was the great Indian sage and adept Tilopa, whose student, whose main disciple was Naropa, who taught Marpa, who taught Milarepa, and so the whole lineage, one of the great lineages of Tibetan Buddhism stemmed from him. His instruction to Naropa encapsulates this same wisdom. He said, Naropa, you are not fettered 
by appearances. You are not fettered or bound by experience. You are fettered by your attachments, so cut your attachments. Liberation through non-clinging. It's the same message. Some years ago, a yogi came to an interview with me, describing his own experience. He said, suffering is rope burn. (laughs) It's the same understanding. What's important is to realize that this is not some state to imagine in the far-off future. It's not that if we practice for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, maybe someday we'll get a glimpse of this. Non-clinging is what our practice is right now in each moment. That's what we're practicing. All the techniques and all the methods and all the metaphysics and all the tools that we use all serve this end. This is the purpose. It's the mind of no craving, the mind of no clinging, no attachment. As you have seen, our unfolding experience keeps changing. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. But the practice of liberation remains the same. (coughs) What I'm about to say, if you can get it, will save you endless dukkha. (laughs) But even though we hear it thousands of times, It's very hard to let it in. And that is that we are not practicing in order to have some better experience. No matter how wonderful or how fantastic the experience may be, we're not practicing for some experience. What we're practicing is what the Buddha called the heart's release. What we're practicing is the freedom of the non-grasping mind that is always accessible in any moment. So how can we accomplish it? How can we actually put this into practice? this release of the heart. One way is through the awareness, the mindfulness of the truth, the experience of impermanence. When we pay attention, we can see impermanence on every level. If you, if you think of the most macroscopic levels, some, not long ago, a weekend or two ago, I was visiting with a friend, had an observatory. We were looking through this telescope in the night sky, and according to him, it was not really the best night for viewing, 
But as we looked through it, he, he pointed out some things and he said, that's, that's two galaxies moving together about, you know, in the process of colliding with one another. Of course, it was only like two dots in the... But the vision of like, you know, galaxies and clusters of galaxies and constant movement, there's nothing static. It's all in a process of change in this most macroscopic level down to the subatomic particle level, where it's all energy movement. And in our more commonplace world, you know, of our commonplace experience, we see all the changes of nature, all the changes of the seasons, the changes of the weather, the changes of our life experiences. so amazing that something which is so obvious when we look, we so completely ignore. Because if we really knew, if we really could see, if we could live this truth of impermanence, the mind would not cling. But somehow we forget. We overlook what is so obvious. I was on retreat once, and this is a story that, it, that is so commonplace, but just as a way of reminding us about this. I was on retreat at IMS in Barrie, Massachusetts, and I was just taking a walk to a pond about a quarter of a mile away. I was walking mindfully. And by the time I got to the pond, I realized that my whole experience of when I started the walk was completely gone. Not only the experience of when I started the walk, you know, five minutes into the walk, ten minutes into the walk, the moment before I reached the pond, it's all gone. All our experience is like a continually flowing river. Nothing is static even for a moment. In meditation practice, as it develops, you know, and as the concentration gets stronger, we reach or experience a stage called the stage of arising and passing away. And that's the stage of insight where we are really seeing clearly the momentariness of phenomena. Our mindfulness and concentration have gotten so sharp that we're just seeing moment after moment, breath, sound, sensation, thought, emotion, sound. And we're seeing the momentariness. We're seeing it very vividly. I think that one of the strongest aspects of our delusion, this is, this is a common delusion, that when we look back at our past experience, we all see and we know its dreamlike nature. Whether it's from years ago to the last moment, the experience is gone, it's disappeared. It's like a dream. And yet when we look ahead to the future, we're continually dazzled by the possibilities of what the future has to offer. 
Have you had any thoughts at all about the first thing you're going to do when you leave here? (laughs) Even though we know in looking back that all of our experiences just passed away and it doesn't have any real substance, yet when we look ahead, we get so addicted. We get so enthralled, enchanted, as if somehow the experience in the future is going to fulfill us. Just think for a moment, you know, of your worst moment on this retreat. You know, full of pain and restlessness and boredom and doubt and wondering why you're here and, you know, your worst, your worst moment. One of my favorite books and titles is a travel book written by Bruce Chatwin, the Australian writer. The name of this travel book is, What Am I Doing Here? (laughs) (laughs) That thought has come very often. So think of that moment. Think of the what am I doing here moment on the retreat. Or think of your best moment, you know, maybe those few moments when the mind was concentrated and calm and collected. Where are they now? Right now. It's all gone, it's past. Experience does not have any substance in that way because it's all passing, it's all changing. It's through our direct experience of impermanence, through reflecting on it, through paying attention to it, through contemplating it, through making the truth of impermanence alive for us, it loosens the grip of attachment. It loosens the grip of clinging, because we remember. The liberating power of seeing impermanence was expressed in one very startling statement of the Buddha. And when you hear it and reflect on it, it is really, it's it's almost shocking. He said, it's better to live for one day seeing the truth of the rising and passing, this momentary rising and passing, that stage of insight. You know, we're, we're, we're seeing the momentariness with great clarity and vividness. Better to live one day to see the impermanence on this level than to live a hundred years without seeing it. What does that say to us about what we value in life and what we're doing? I mean, I find that really, really startling. That of all the things we value in our lives, the Buddha is saying, better to live one day to see this truth of impermanence at this depth. Why? Because it's the seeing of this that is the seed of liberation. We actually develop that wisdom of understanding the nature of experience, the nature of reality, in a way that frees our mind, begins to free our mind from attachment and grasping and clinging. So 
So in our meditation practice, we can apply this. We can apply it very directly by paying attention not only to what it is that's arising, you know, a sound or a sensation or a hindrance or the breath. So we pay attention not only to what's arising and not only to our reaction to what's arising, whether we like it or don't like it, but we also pay attention carefully to what happens to each arising experience. So that's another dimension of mindfulness. A sound arises, we're aware of hearing, pay attention to what happens to the sound, or to the sensation in the body, or to the thought. When we were working with Upandita, our Burmese teacher, he was very demanding, very demanding, strict teacher. We had to go in with these daily reports on our practice, reporting our experience very uh, meticulously. You know, we'd have to describe in the rising or falling movement exactly what sensations we felt, all the different sensations in the body. And he always wanted to know, with every experience that we reported, we would have to say what happened to that experience as we were aware of it. Did it get stronger? Did it get weaker? Did it disappear? Did it disappear quickly? Did it disappear gradually? Well, that kind of observation was very, uh, was very demanding you know, on the attention. We really had to be paying attention in order to know. But the training was so valuable because it made so clear the momentary nature of experience because we were seeing very directly, yeah, everything that's arising is changing in one way or another. So I invite you to begin practicing in that way, even for short periods of time. You know, take five minutes or ten minutes of a sitting where you're really looking at that. Any object at any sense door is revealing the truth of change. So this is not something that's esoteric, that we have to go looking for. We simply have to be paying attention to what is already happening. Sounds are disappearing, sensations are changing, one breath follows the other. Not only that, when we look carefully at any one of those objects, we see that it's not one thing. The breath is not a single thing. Even a half-breath is not a single thing. It's a flow. It's a current of microscopic sensations. It's a flow. Listen to the sound. Sound is not one solid thing. It's a flow. It's a current of vibration. Everything is like that. So when we look carefully and just settle into that, we don't have to create it. We just have to listen carefully, pay attention carefully, and it reveals itself. Everything we do in practice, working with the primary object, 
the mental noting, developing concentration, all the techniques, all the tools, the slow movement, all the tools that we employ are all in the service of the mind of no clinging. The Buddha gave very explicit suggestion for the realization of enlightenment, of freedom. He said, whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, so moment after moment, whatever feelings are arising, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Contemplate fading away, relinquishment, letting go of those feelings. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. When, there's not, when the mind is not agitated, we personally attain Nibbana, or freedom. Abide contemplating impermanence. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we don't cling, there is no agitation. When there is no agitation, we personally attain Nibbana. <coughs> but one of the things that I love so much about the Buddha's teachings, he didn't just stop there. He didn't, he didn't just stop with the instruction, don't cling. Because in case we're still missing it, you know, in case we still don't get it, what he did was point out all the various places where we do cling. You know, he pointed out the arenas that we should pay attention to, because these are the places where the clinging happens pretty big time. So the first of them, the first field of clinging, is the attachment we have to pleasant sense experience. We like what's pleasant, and we don't like what's unpleasant, and this goes very deep. No, it's the wanting mind. We can see it, we, we want or we cling to pleasant sensations in the body. Notice the difference in your mind when the body feels pleasant and when there's pain. Is it all equal? Is it of one taste? <laughs> well, maybe for a moment or two. The conditioning is very deep in us to cling or want what's pleasant. Pleasant sights or sounds, pleasant thoughts. You know, you probably know how, how completely enticing it is to sit here lost in a reverie for an hour. The hour goes quickly, you don't, you know, you're not feeling so much discomfort in the body. It's just that the wanting of the pleasant experience. When we investigate, when we look, and all of this can come from a place of interest. It's not a, it's not a question of judging it. It's just that interest in investigating the nature of our minds and how we get caught, and it reveals a lot about the nature of addiction and fascination enchantment. There's a, there's a mind state which 
I've noticed, I call it catalog consciousness. <laughs> Do you ever notice your mind, when, you know, the endless number of catalogs one gets in the mail? And you probably have a few favorites, you know, that you don't throw out right away. You ever notice your mind as you're looking through the catalog? It's like, we don't even know what we want, but we want something. <laughs> and hoping that on the next page, there it's going to be. Sometimes I watch myself doing this, it's unbelievable. And not only once. <laughs> There was an ad, you know, our, our culture is so amazing, <laughs> how the deepest spiritual truths get co-opted by advertising. <laughs> You've probably seen this ad or heard one of us mention it, you know, there's an ad for some car, I don't know, Jeep Cherokee or something. There's this, you know, handsome man and beautiful woman standing in front of the car, but also surrounded by just piles and piles of all the latest toys, you know, technological toys, and anything anyone could possibly want. And the caption read, to be one with everything, you need one of everything. <laughs> <laughs> and we try. <laughs> we really try. So the power of this wanting mind, you know, this attachment or clinging to pleasant things, is very strong in us. You know, it's deeply habituated and continually reinforced. Well, it's very you know, freeing. And this is the great gift of the practice. I mean, it's, it's of inestimable value to actually have a way to sit and watch the mind and begin to watch desire arising. Because in that awareness, we then begin to have a choice. You know, an image which has come to me a lot as I've watched my mind in this way, it feels to me like, you know, I'm kind of cruising along on the highway, driving the car, and then at an exit there's kind of a big sign, a billboard, advertising whatever my current fantasy happens to be. You know, so I'm meditating, everything's going along fine, and all of a sudden in my mind this billboard, you know, amusement park. Psh. Take the exit, spend some time, you know, a minute or five minutes, a half an hour, however long it is, amusing myself in that particular fantasy, and then kind of wake up, you know, drive back to the highway. Going along, everything's fine, mindful, aware. Another exit, another sign, another amusement park. Get off, but maybe this time I notice a little quicker. And I get off, but I realize what happened, I get right back on. I don't spend a lot of time. Back on the highway, going along. <coughs> when the mindfulness, when the awareness is strong, <coughs> we can see the billboard. <coughs> Excuse me. See the billboard, the amusement park. Seeing, seeing, seeing. Psh. Stay right on the highway. Not diverted at all. 
the power of mindfulness, the power of awareness, gives us the option. Do we want to take that exit or not? Is it of value? Or are we just distracting ourselves? It's so quick, the hook of desire. At one point I was, I was doing a self-retreat. And th- th- this is an example that has happened 50 million times. <laughs> I was doing a self-retreat. I was at home. I sit upstairs in my bedroom. I was coming downstairs to do some walking meditation. On the steps coming down, a flicker of a thought. Oh, cup of tea. That's all. It was almost like a subliminal thought. <laughs> I get to the bottom of the stairs, left, left, into the kitchen. <laughs> and, but I, w- I was mindful enough <laughs> to at least notice that it was happening. And it was just amazing to me that that tiniest of thoughts It's like my whole life took another direction <laughs> in that moment. And that's just one tiny thought about something not terribly important. But this is what's happening countless times during the day. We are driven by our desires when we are not aware, when we're not paying attention. So it takes training. This is not an easy, the conditioning goes so deep. We need this training in mindfulness to actually be watching our mind. So we begin at least sometimes to be aware when they're arising. So we're not compelled. In addition to our desire for pleasant sense experiences, and just to watch how often they drive us. There's also the strong desire for pleasant meditative experiences. And so we bring that very same conditioning into our meditation practice, and this is very common. You know, we struggle for so long with the pain, the discomfort, and the restlessness, and finally, perhaps, you know, after some days, or weeks, or months, or years, whatever, you know, we sit, oh, yeah, and the mind is actually calm, and it's peaceful, and the body feels light. We begin to have all these nice experiences in meditation. Very easy to get attached to these feelings, to start practicing for these feelings. And it's very interesting, because all of these qualities, which in one context are called the factors of enlightenment, of joy, of rapture, of calm, of equanimity. All of these factors, which in one context are factors of enlightenment, when we're attached to them, are called corruptions of insight. These very same experiences that we've been practicing so hard for, corruptions of insight. Why? Because of the liability to stop there. The liability to get it, ah, oh, finally, I've got it. One point I'd been practicing in Burma uh, for some months and gone through a lot of 
unpleasant times, but after after some time, my mind had really gotten to a very, very quiet, refined place, uh, and I was loving it. You know, after after struggling for so long, and I was just sort of effortlessly noticing the most minute aspects of impermanence. And anyway, I go into Upandita finally, you know. Kind of really happy with my practice in meditation. And I go in and give him this report on the most minute aspects. And he looked at me and he said, You're too attached to subtlety. <laughs> you know? And it was a great reminder because I was, and I was totally attached to it, forgetting that what we're practicing is the mind of no clinging. All of these experiences come in their own time. You know, where the mind does get very subtle and there is calm and peace and all of that. But we're not practicing for that. Because those two are impermanent states. We're practicing the mind that does not cling. So we have to hear this again and again because it's so easy to get caught. mantra that I've been using, I've mentioned in some of the small groups I had, but I found it a really helpful reminder. It doesn't matter to what we don't cling. So we don't have to wait for some special experience not to cling to it. (laughs) Why not not cling now? Because in that moment, for that moment, everything is accomplished. Right there, in that moment, we have accomplished the fruit of the practice, even if it is just for a moment. One, one Tibetan teacher had a very wonderful expression describing the process of enlightenment. He, he said, short moments many times. So rather than thinking or practicing, having the idea that somehow we need to practice and just find this state and stay in it, it's not like that. It's short moments of not clinging many times. We can all do that. You don't have to postpone that in your practice. It's just remembering. So this is the first arena, you know, to look uh, in terms of where we're attached, where we cling, sense pleasures or meditative pleasures. The next arena of clinging is hugely important to observe because it is the cause of an unbelievable amount of suffering in our lives and in the world because of not being seen. And that is the attachment we have to our views and opinions about things. We have views and opinions about almost everything. And we get very caught up in our attachment to them. People go to war 
over religious beliefs. A few, uh, few months ago, I saw this film, which you might have seen, I saw it on video, Welcome to Sarajevo. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was sort of a documentary uh, of Sarajevo during the war, you know, in Bosnia. It was unbelievable just how neighbors, people living close by each other for years, for their lifetimes, because of differences of religion or ethnic background, the madness and the suffering and the killing, it was really, it was so incredibly sad to see the suffering that comes when we don't understand our minds. And where did all that come from? It came from people's minds. People being very attached to a view. We do this a lot in our lives. It may not be on that scale, and we may not go around killing people. But it would be interesting to investigate when you have some kind of conflict, interpersonal conflict, just to take a look if any part of that, or a good part, or all of it, is coming from attachment to a view, attachment to an opinion. Now, all the sectarianism that happens, even in spiritual circles, some people practicing enlightenment, my way is the best way, the quickest way, the <laughs> And even when we actually do know something, you know, maybe when the opinion is based on an actual experience, you know, and maybe it is grounded in some wisdom, can we hold it? Can we hold that understanding or that knowledge or that insight in a place of openness rather than a place of attachment? Because it keeps us open to other points of view, to other perspectives. So no matter what our experience is, or how much we think we know, it's still really very little. And it becomes possible to actually learn from each other when we're not holding on so tightly. It's very helpful to look at this. There's one, <coughs> I think it was a 17th century Japanese Zen master, Bankai, He wrote this wonderful book, and it's, it's in English, <coughs> it's translated as The Unborn. In one of the lines in this book, he says, don't side with yourself. <laughs> and just as a kind of short, pithy instruction, that's really useful. And just to watch all the times in the day when we do side with ourselves, you know, and take a stand. So there's attachment, this clinging, to pleasant experience, whether it's pleasant worldly sense experience, whether it's pleasant meditative experience. There's clinging, there's attachment to our views and opinions about things. The deepest attachment, and the one that takes the most practice and care to, to see, to let go of, is the attachment we have to the concept of self this sense of I. 
Because this sense of self, this concept of self, is at the very center of how we live. All of our experience refers back to someone having it. That someone being me. But when we train ourselves in mindfulness, when we really train ourselves and look and see, okay, what is it, this mind-body? What is it that we're calling self? We begin to see first, maybe it's just intuitions, and then glimpses, and then deep realizations. That self, the sense of self, the idea of self, is a concept. It's an idea which is constructed. It's a story which we're creating about our experience. It's not something there which is existing in itself. There's not some thing, some core, something or other that we can find and say, yes, this is me. A few examples. One is an old favorite of mine, so you probably have heard it in one form or another. You go out at night, you look up at a clear night, you look up at the stars. You're familiar with the constellation, the Big Dipper? And most of you probably are. It's one of the few easily recognizable constellations. Okay, so you go up, you look up at the sky, see the Big Dipper. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you a question. This is like the midterm exam. Is there really a Big Dipper up there? <laughs> There's no Big Dipper. <laughs> what we're seeing, really, are points of light you know, in a certain configuration, and we give it the name, we create the concept Big Dipper, and it's like the name is actually useful. Like, like having that constellation, it points to the North Star, and if you're lost in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and you need to navigate. <laughs> okay, so we know that Big Dipper is a concept. We know that there's no Big Dipper up in the sky. Just as an experiment, next clear night, go outside, look up, and see if it's possible not to see the Big Dipper. <laughs> it's very difficult. We have been so conditioned to pull out that particular constellation of stars as being somehow separate from the whole rest of the sky. And we lay this concept very automatically. It's very hard to see the sky without seeing Big Dipper. Well, if it's that hard not to see Big Dipper, <laughs> self is exactly like that. Self is a concept. The idea of self is a concept which we are putting on the elements of our experience. You get up in the morning, you look in the mirror, yep, that's me. <laughs> so we are living out this notion, we're living out this idea. But it is only an idea, it's a concept. It doesn't point to anything actually existing. 
And yet our whole life is based on it. Our whole life revolves about it. And so the power of our practice, the power of mindfulness, is to investigate. It's not to believe one way or the other. You know, it's not just to take on another belief of, of no self. It's really to look. What is it that we are calling self? And we begin to see that it is a constellation of mental and physical elements. But even when we know this, even on an intellectual or conceptual level, we begin to grasp, yeah, maybe self is, is like the Big Dipper, it's a concept. Still, there's a very strong felt sense of I. It feels like there's a self. Well, where does this come from, and how is it created? The felt sense of I and self is created in every moment that we identify with various arising experiences. Something arises, and in that tendency of the mind to identify with it, right there we have created the feeling of self. So, for example, one of the things we identify with a lot, strong identification, strong attachment, is to this body. We take this body to be who we are. But when we look carefully, and this, this is the gift of meditation, we sit and we really pay attention, okay, what is our experience of the body? Not our idea of it, but our experience of it. We see that there is nothing there that could be called self. Because it's elements that are continually changing. You know, we go from being a baby to a youth to adolescent to younger person, you know, middle age, an old person. Which one is you? Which of, which of those bodies is the self? The body is very different from baby to old person. A friend of mine had laparoscopic surgery for a fibroid tumor. You know, as they do that, they go in in this very small incision with a video camera. And so the surgeon is actually watching the, the screen as cutting away the tumor. It's quite amazing. And as a reward for the operation, they give you the video. <laughs> so, <laughs> my friend had zero interest in watching. <coughs> I couldn't wait. <coughs> so, you know, stick it in the VCR. And it was totally amazing because it was a video of the inside of the body. You know, and there were all the organs and the muscles and the blood, and you could see, you know, the cutting away of the tumor. Well, looking at the body from the inside didn't look like her at all. <laughs> you know, what is it that we're calling self here? Is it the liver of the self? Or the intestines? Or the fluids? Or... But somehow, you know, it's all nicely packaged in skin, and all of a sudden, yeah, that's me. So we're basing this, we're, we're creating the sense of self 
from based on a very superficial perception, even though it's a conventional perception, but it's very superficial of what the body actually is. So we want to go deeper, we want to really see and understand. It has enormous consequences because we're so attached and identified to the body. And it's common. We all have this and share this. But the consequences are that there's tremendous fear of loss and fear of death. If we weren't identified with the body, would there be any fear of death? There's a wonderful story. This is, this is one of my favorite teaching stories. It's about His Holiness, the 16th Karmapa, who was the head of one of the great Tibetan lineages who has since reincarnated and actually has recently escaped from China to India, the 17th. But the 16th, uh, he was very sick and he was dying. He was in Chicago in a hospital. He had cancer. His body was a mess. Uh, and this was a process that took some time. And his students were very upset, of course, and you know concerned about uh, his death. And so after some time, he turned to them and he said, "Don't worry. Nothing happens." you imagine being in that space of understanding where the body's falling apart and dying? Don't worry, nothing happens. Because he was so free of identification with the body. Tremendous place of freedom there. Well, we can begin to practice. We can begin to practice in that way. And it's, it's a process you know, of learning. If you pay close attention in the sitting and the walking, just we'll take the walking as an example. Now you could, we could be with the walking and really feel a sense of the body walking. At another level, we begin to drop into the changing sensations of the movement, right, where we're feeling the vibration or the heaviness or the lightness or the whatever. And at a certain point, we drop so into that flow of changing sensations, the form of the body disappears completely. There's no body there. It's just a flow of sensations in space. And we begin to see that this body is not something solid. It's an energy field. There's no solidity there at all. So through our own practice, we begin to loosen this attachment this identification with the body as being me, as being I. It's just elements at work. We create a sense of self when we're identified with thoughts. I'm sure you're very familiar with this. You know, sitting, walking, different thoughts come, planning, judging, imagining, whatever. When we're not mindful, thoughts arise, we identify with them, and in that moment, I'm planning, I'm judging, I'm whatever. We have added the sense of I. Mm. 
And then we identify with whole stories that we make up about ourselves and other people. At one point I was doing some walking meditation. Again, it was in a retreat with Upandita, the first, the first year. And so we're really practicing very hard. I was doing the slow walking meditation outside his window. And I glanced up and I saw him looking, looking out the window. So I got even more mindful. <laughs> or, or, or pretended to be even more mindful, it was more accurate. You know, some very slow, very slow glance up again. There he's watching. So I'm going back and forth like that. Lift, move, place. After 10, 15 minutes, I couldn't imagine why he was watching me for so long. So then I kind of stopped and I looked more carefully. It was a lampshade. <laughs> but I had created this whole... I had created this whole story and then lived in the reality of that story. It's very illuminating to pay attention to how often we do this. You know, just watch all the projections we have about other people. And we don't even know them. And we're making up whole stories. And then we like them and we don't like them. When we identify with our thoughts, we are creating this strong sense of self. You create a strong sense of self when we're identified with our emotions. I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad. Not only we don't stop with that, we then create a whole superstructure of self. Not only I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm an angry person. I'm a fearful person. And so we create this whole sense of a personality of who we are and we start living in that life story. And all that's happening is that an emotion has arisen out of certain conditions, just like a cloud appears in the sky. It forms, it's there, dissipates. The emotion comes into being, conditioned by various things. It's there, it passes away. Can we be with our emotions in the same open, relaxed way that we're with sound? This would be an interesting practice in the same way. Sounds appear, disappear, no problem. Can we practice sadness? Fine. We're just feeling it, letting it wash through, not claiming it as I or mine, happiness, fear, whatever it is. This takes practice because emotions are what we most personalize. And so we get caught. We live in the prison of self. Doesn't mean not having them or not feeling them. We're totally open. We feel them fully. We're simply not claiming them as being one's own. There's a, there's a line from Rumi. He said, what I want is to leap out of this personality. I've lived too long where I can be reached. <laughs> What a relief, just to let it all go. And it doesn't mean not stopping the flow of experience. It, it simply means not identifying with each thing as it arises. 
seeing that it's all part of the passing show. There's a tremendous ease and freedom as we can do that. Then the most subtle level <coughs> at which we create the sense of self, we identify with the body, with thoughts, with emotions. <coughs> most subtle level is when we identify with consciousness itself, with the knowing, with the awareness. Because even as we drop back and we're observing all of these phenomena, you know, the breath comes and the sensations and thoughts and emotions and we're seeing the impermanence of them, but it's very easy to become identified with the knowing and thereby create the sense of the knower or the observer. Well, I'm the one who's watching all of this. I'm the one who's knowing it all. And so this is the last place of unhooking, where we begin to experience the nature of awareness free of identification with it. And yesterday, in the questions, I talked a little bit about this. One, as I mentioned, things being known. Right? A sound being known, a thought being known, an emotion being known. Because it takes the self out of it. It's just a process of knowing. From time to time, as you're paying attention to the flow of experience, you might turn your attention back. Okay, the sound is being known. Known by what? What is the nature of awareness? And when you look, you see there is nothing to find. And yet the knowing is happening. When you're walking, I love in, in the walking meditation, it's like moment after moment as the foot moves, the leg moves. It's just this flow of microscopic sensations and in each sensations being known, unfolding, appearing, moment after moment and being known effortlessly. Nobody's doing anything. Those sensations are just being known. Known by what? Just staying in that experience begins to reveal the nature of awareness to it, the empty, cognizing nature. Buddha Dasa, who was one of the great Thai monks, of, uh, he died some years ago. He said, we should really call mind emptiness, but because of knowing faculty, we call it mind. So this very intriguing understanding of the nature of mind, being empty and knowing at the same time. This is not far off. This is in every moment. So it's just paying attention. Liberation through non-clinging. We accomplish it through seeing the impermanence, the changing nature. We accomplish it through our direct investigation of selflessness. The Buddha summed up all of his teaching. He said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Whoever has heard this has heard all the teachings.
whoever practices this has practiced all the teachings. And whoever realizes this has realized all the teachings. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. So this is our practice. During the day, watch for those moments of contraction of self. You're going along, everything's fine. And just watch for those moments when there's a tightening around something, a, a wanting, a desire, a reaction, a judgment, a whatever, a plan. Watch for the moments of selfing. Really see in no moment what is it that we're identifying with and creating that sense of self. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. This is not a philosophic statement. This is the Buddha's profound instruction to us. This is what we are practicing. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you. Simply relax into the body, allowing the flow of experience. The breath is being known, different sensations are being known, thoughts are being known. Let everything come and go by itself. Relaxing back into the mind of no clinging, no grasping, no wanting. T.S. Eliot expressed this state really beautifully in some lines of the Four Quartets, this mind of no clinging. He said, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Thank you.